Verse 18 opens with Jesus walking into Jerusalem. In the week leading up to his death, Jesus lodged in a small town. Some of you guys know, remember the name of the town? Uh, 
talking as a sign to all the people that did the Passover. And um, as a rule, there was literally not enough space for everybody to stay in the conference in Jerusalem. And so they would stay in the neighboring village of Bethany while people were on their way to the conference. So it's a perfect conference for me to go into Jerusalem every morning, make the little cookies, perform the ministry cake and eat the cookies and see the death in the night until the wedding stay with his friends and dine with them and my sisters would stay in either doing things in Jerusalem or in um, doing things in Jerusalem. Pretty much from here on out, these men would go to Jerusalem or Missouri or wherever it was that they stayed. And so verse 18 tells us that they, as they were returning from Jerusalem, Jesus became hungry. Now, this may seem like this is a tiny detail, but it's actually monumental. The only other time in Matthew that you hear about Jesus getting hungry is when he is tempted in the desert, right? You hear about the disciples getting hungry, you hear about the crowds getting hungry, but this is the only and second time you hear about Jesus himself getting hungry. It says he became hungry, and in his hunger, verse 19, Jesus sees a fig tree. So upon seeing the fig tree, Jesus goes up to the tree to pick a fig. I think this is a pretty uh, maybe foreign thing for us. Um, in many parts of the world, there were public trees that grew public fruit. And at any moment, you could go up to the tree and pick the fruit. Nowadays, if you see a tree, there's a 99.9% chance that it belongs to somebody. And right? That's how you get off their, their property, right? This is a public tree. And when Matthew says, by the wayside, that's what he meant. goes up to pick a, a fig off of it to eat because he's hungry for his breakfast, right? When we read the Mark version of the story, which is found in Mark 11, it says in verse 13, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. For the majority of us, figs are a pretty foreign fruit. Like who's, who here has had figs before? Who here has had fresh figs before? You ate it. Did you eat it here? You guys know what color a fig is? Like, like the, the raw fruit? It's like a lime, right? But pretty foreign to us. And so most of us have not had fresh figs, much less understand how fig leaf trees grow. But even for most of us, it seems kind of unreasonable to think that Jesus would be upset at a tree for not bearing fruit out of season, right? So what's happening here? some quick research on fig trees, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that for fig trees, the way they work is they first bear fruit, and then they bear leaves. So for the average person in the Middle East, if you saw a fig tree with leaves, it almost guaranteed, there was almost a guaranteed win, right? Because the fruit came first. In other words, for Jesus to find a fig tree that was full of leaves, lush, green tree, full of leaves, but to have no fruit on it would mean that the tree was the wrong tree, right? Blight, some sort of uh, bacterial infection, something is wrong with it. It's not growing right. It's pushing foliage, but it is not bearing fruit. There is uh, something fundamentally wrong with the tree. And I know for us, it's kind of a wasted reference. Like I said, we're, 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 we
average person has seen a fig tree grow, but the average person is unable to see a fig tree with leaves that are old and have been uh, a shocking fig tree, fig tree, right? And so for that reason, in verse 19, Jesus curses the tree and says, may no fruit ever come from you again. First, we must understand that, that this is a literal event. Jesus literally got hungry, and Jesus actually cursed the tree, and the tree actually withered. Mark's version of the story, it says that they discovered the tree the next day. And so some of us might think that that's a contradiction, but if we understand how Matthew and Mark write, Mark is very concerned with timing and order and chronology and sequence, whereas Matthew just doesn't care. In his mind, it could have been a week between. For him, it was more focused on the fact that the tree withered, right? But in Mark's story, it was actually a day. Whether you believe it was a day or immediate, um, it was a, it was an actual event. But while this miracle actually happened, this miracle also acted as an object lesson of Jesus' judgment and authority. Right? Not to say that it's either literal or symbolic, it's both. Jesus cursed the literal fig tree and it withered, but in that event was something greater. And so let's unpack that. All throughout the Old Testament, Israel is often described as a fig tree or a fig tree. We sometimes, I know many of us have maybe read the larger one, like Isaiah or Ezekiel. But when you read through the Old Testament, Judges 9, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 12, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, books like Joel, Hosea, Amos, there's so many references to Israel being the plant that God planted, the fig tree that God planted fig tree or the vineyard that God planted with the purpose of bearing fruit. This is a strong Old Testament reference to the image of Israel in the Old Testament. Yeah, it was, a, it was an image of Israel and it was an image of their fruitfulness. It was an image of their obedience. And so if the fig tree is an image, uh, the fruitful fig tree is an image of Israel, then we also see many images of the fruitless fig tree or the withered tree um, used as imagery for Israel's rebellion and their disobedience in the Old Testament. For example, when God is talking about Judah in the book of Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, he says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken away from them. Go to Hosea 2 and Joel 1, you'll see very similar references. So the image of the fig tree withering and not bearing fruit is uh, is a curse that God put over Israel, right? And so when you get to Jesus doing this with the literal fig tree, it is extremely consistent. Jesus is fulfilling these promises that are found in the Old Testament. You guys following? He fulfills these things that God has been talking about through all his prophets, and then Jesus comes and he goes to the fig tree, and it's not bearing fruit, and he curses it. Perfect fulfillment. In other words, just like many promises in the Old Testament, God is judging Israel because of her lack of fruit. Jesus is communicating the same truth with this literal fig tree. Uh, I love this quote from uh, C. Wiggins years ago. He says, Israel, like the fig tree, showed the outward signs of bearing fruit, but those who approached it spiritually hungry found none. 
Although planted by God and nurtured by his servants, the people of God experience rejection. The most direct of these passages in the Old Testament is found in Micah chapter 7, verse 9. And I'm just going to read it to you. And as I read it, I want you to hear these words as though they were coming from Jesus' mouth himself. Jesus himself knew the true hearts of Israel. So I want you to imagine him saying this. Micah 7, 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been cleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig left to take away from the vine. Church, it is very important to note that from very early on, the nation of Israel was set aside by God for the purpose of worshiping him and to act as a light and a beacon to the people. This is why he chose them and that's why he did such a thing. Not because of something good in Israel, but it was the people that he chose himself so that that he would witness to the world. The Jews were responsible for teaching the world how to worship the one true creator. However, though they prided themselves on being children of God, when Yahweh himself manifested in the flesh in the person of Jesus, they didn't know him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. Jesus cursing the fig tree here in Matthew 21, verses 18 to 22, is, is symbolic God's judgment over the nation of Israel. The, the fig tree symbolized the nation of Israel. And what we're, seeing, what we're seeing here is God finally casting off Israel as the national Israel, as the main vessel through which he would work in the world. However, God is not done. What we see in the word of God moving forward is that God promises also that he will replant and start again the people of God. Amos chapter 9 verse 14 says, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild the cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make their gardens bloom. So who is Yahweh talking about this morning? Biblically, we are taught that this restoration, this act of restoration, this restored vineyards and restored fig trees is done through Jesus' work through his new covenant people of God the entire point of the book of Matthew, starting from Matthew and culminating in Revelation, we see that Jesus, Messiah, Jesus King, has come to restore his people through his death on the cross and his resurrection. Amen? The Bible teaches us that the restoration mentioned in Amos 9 is available for all who repent of their sins, who offer those who believe in Jesus and follow him in lordship. Amen? Amen? And this is exactly what happens after Jesus rises from the dead ascends to the right hand of the Father and sends his people in Matthew 28 and then eventually he sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in and with his people and with his Holy Spirit we become the restored people of God ready to bear the new fruit of worship and worship. Amen? Of course, his new covenant people still include the biological Jews but what makes them different is their focus on the work of Christ. First, this story reminds us of, again, that that we are the restored vineyard in Amos 9. Because we are filled with the Spirit, we as Christians are empowered to bear fruit. Our individual lives and our collective existence as a church act as a vineyard or as a garden that bear fruit to His glory. 
It is a reminder and something that we ought to thank Him for and worship Him for. The fact that we have been grafted into the great heritage of many who believe in Yahweh and trust in Him for their salvation. Think about Hebrews 11, who is a faith hall of fame because of men and women in there who were faithful to the Lord. Think imagine that Abraham and his family. Abraham talked about it. Abraham had good and chained lineage of giants in that church. Because we've been grafted in by the Holy Spirit. We are saved by faith. Testament, we have seen again and again that bearing fruit is what we are called to as believers. Point blank, period. As his new fig trees, we have been renewed by his spirit to bear fruit. This is what we do. Period. Christians bear fruit. Belief leads to fruit. Faith without works is what? Dead. This is what we do, and the Bible is absolutely ripe. Galatians 5, chapter, sorry, chapter 5, verses 22, remind us of the fruit of the Spirit. You guys sang that in Sunday school. Go alive. Just kidding. John 4, Romans 1, Romans 6, Philippians 1, Philippians 4, Hebrews 12. All are passages that remind us that we are not just commanded to bear fruit, but it is our very essence. It is our very personality. It is our very being, right? We have been renewed, and before we knew Jesus, we bore nothing renewed in Christ, we have been given his spirit to bear fruit for the Lord, to bear fruits of worship and to bear fruits of witness to the nations. However, one big passage that comes to mind is John 15, verses 1 to 17, and I'm not going to read the whole thing to you guys. It's a lot, but in that section alone, Jesus talks about bearing fruit eight times. Eight times. Listen to 17, verse 15. One example is John 15, verse 16. He says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you that you should go and do what? Bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. But this passage also leads us to a second thing that this story has to do with us. It's not just a reminder of our, of our new status in, in the Lord. Not only is the Jesus and the fig tree a reminder for us, but it is also a warning. And so the warning is this, church, and I want you to hear me loud and clear. Bear fruit or be cut off. Bear fruit or be cut off. To quote D.A. Carson, he says, The point here is that the tree gave every outward sign of bearing fruit, but in fact it bore none. The tree stood out because it was in leaf. Its leaves advertised that it was bearing fruit. down on the Israelites, we ask ourselves questions. How could they not have known he was the Messiah? Or how could they have seen him do so much and yet still not believe? We can sit here and judge them and say that their hearts were hard. How could they crucify him? How could they put him to death when days before they were screaming, Hosanna? How could they do these things? They got to see him in the flesh and they still didn't believe. Fair questions to ask sometimes we don't ask ourselves the same ones. In the same way that Israel demonstrated all of the foliage of devotion to God, their lack of fruit betrayed the real state of their hearts. 
And in the same way, we can often produce the same foliage, external signs of devotion to God, and still fail to produce the fruit. So church, we must ask ourselves, in what ways are we producing leaves but no fruit in our own lives? I think you can answer that as well. It is critical that we remind ourselves of this because following Jesus does not only change our outside appearance, but rather leads to a genuine transformation of our hearts, our minds, and our habits. Genuine fruit starts on the inside and it works its way outwards. To the credit of the Holy Spirit and to your own love for Jesus, this is true of many of you, true of many of us. I can genuinely see that you are leaning heavy on the Spirit, not perfectly, not always consistently, but you are trusting the Spirit to change you from the inside out. And I am grateful to watch the Spirit work in many of your lives. I don't want to make this sound like, you know, you're all that big of a deal. The Spirit is working. And for some of you, you may look at your lives and say, I have nothing. Where's the fruit, right? But, you know, some of you are expecting watermelon fruit, and you might just be getting raisins, right? And that's still fruit. But it's not you to compare your life to other people, but it's you to seek after the Lord and ask for that forgiveness we must continue to seek to prune, uh, seek the pruning hand of God so that we can bear even more fruit in this hard time. This passage is a reminder, but it's also a warning. If you look at John 15, I think there's two passages that I think carry the same warning to bear fruit or else be cut off. And they're very severe, but I'm just going to read them to you. John 15, 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6 says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Church, do you hear the warning of the Lord? Do you hear it? If you are sitting here today and you are afraid that you will be cast off, I want to encourage you that the very antidote is found in the same passage. It's found in in, in, in John 15, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 4 says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you are sitting here afraid that you will be snipped off or cast off or cursed like the fig tree, the right response is not to turn our backs on Jesus. The right response is not to sit here arrested in fear as though we had no other way forward. The right response is to go back to our Lord and Savior Jesus and to abide in Him. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, what does it mean to abide? Very simply, the word abide is extremely similar to the word abode. So what, is, what does that word mean? What does abode mean? What's that? A place you live. It's your house, right? What do we do in our houses? satisfaction who loves going home who loves going home who loves never leaving their home in our homes we find our satisfaction we find warmth we find protection we find nourishment we find love and family we find safety 
Like I said, after a long day of work, we love to go home, have a shower, sleep in our bed, right? Is that what Drake said? He loves to yawn and sleep in the bed, right? <laughs> you can't hear that today. Our beds are in our homes for a reason. Our fridges are in our homes for a reason. That's where your clothes are, right? That's where your family is. That's where your shoes are. You guys know me. I love a good pair of socks. That's where mine are. They're at home. They're not here with me. This is who Jesus is to us. I think we hear the word abide and we think like it's this mysterious, like, like who's reading? Like for me, I hear it. Someone would read John 15 and be like, I still don't know. I'm obviously not abide. To abide, and then you what do you mean? I'm like, I don't get it. But the image of home is beautiful. This is who Jesus is to us. He is our home, He is our protection, He is our warmth, He is our safety. I'm sure many of you were grateful for the warm homes that you were in this week. Let me slow again and paint. This is who Jesus is to us. He is not just a name tag we can snap onto our shirts, He is our home. Is in him where we find all satisfaction, shelter, safety, nourishment, all family, amen? Psalm 91 verses 1 to 2 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Right? You've got, I, I think I've told you this guys many times, go through Psalms and look for all the references of abiding and dwelling and hiding and being protected by entering under the rock, under the shelter, protection from the elements, protection from enemies, um, dining at the table with the Lord, eating, seeing that the Lord is good. The book of Psalms is basically a book about home, right? It's a big book about home. And you see David's angst throughout all of the Psalms where he is running from enemies and all these different things. It's because it's not just that he is, uh, his life is under danger. He is away from home. He has lost all of the safety of home. So what he does is he finds himself, he finds hope in the Lord. This guy is living in fields, on the run, in villages, hiding, in ditches. And he has the the nerve to say, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Powerful stuff. David was not homeless. David found refuge in the Lord. So when we see Jesus saying, abide in me, this is what he's saying. Live in me, literally, like, enter into my, like, who I am as a person. Enter into my safety and my protection. I will feed you. I will take care of you. I will also rebuke you. But I will have you, and I will keep you, and I'll never leave you, amen? To abide in him means to cling to him in the same way that you would fight tooth and nail to maintain the safety and the integrity of your home. You must fight to abide in him. We all go to work to pay our rent so that we will have all of the above. And anyone here who has had an unstable home situation understands that a safe and loving home is everything, right? In the same way you rely on your home for all of the above, we must rely in him. When life is hard, we must abide in him. When life is good, we must abide in him. In other words, go home. If you are afraid of being cut off and withered like the fig tree, go home. Go to Jesus. Go to him in his word. Go to him in prayer. Seek him and you will find him. Amen, church? And look at what the blessings are of abiding in him. John 15, 2 says, Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, and he may bear more fruits. 
Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Church, if we abide in him, if we go home, we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. Amen? The last part of the passage in Matthew is the disciples' reaction to Jesus performing the miracles. And so let's look in verses 20 to 22. It says, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you have faith and do not doubt, for not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Amen. As we transition from what the miracle meant to the nation of Israel and to us, the church, it appears that the disciples have no idea. They are not looking at the the symbolism and the imagery and the metaphor. They are fixated on the actual miracle. Can you blame them? Can you blame them? Like, he cursed the tree, and the day after, it's gone. Withered. Can you imagine? Big brown stump, leaves have fallen off, everything's dried up, crusty. 24 hours or less. In verse 20, it says that the disciples marveled, and I don't blame them. And so their question is, how, Jesus, how did you do that? How did the fig tree wither at once? How? As you recall, Jesus has taught about prayer before in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 16, we looked at this prayer, right? Moreover, Jesus in Matthew 17 has already used this proverb, this Israeli proverb. It, it, it was common to their culture. A man of faith was called a mountain thrower. It was literally part of their, their daily language, right? In Matthew 17, if you recall, the disciples were unable to cast the demon out of the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't do it, Jesus very bluntly said, because of your little faith. Prayer is a very sticky topic like this. Who hears Jesus' promise of power to move mountains and believes in his power? Let's be honest. of power to move mountains and immediately it fell. The thing I want to draw attention to though is the connection between fruit bearing and prayer. And what we will see over the next few weeks as Matthew progresses is that Jesus starts the process of passing the torch to his disciples. The reason why Jesus mentions prayer is because the church will be built primarily on prayer as our source of power. For the early church, prayer was everything for them. I'm sure they weren't perfect, but if they modeled themselves after Jesus in any way, it would have led to a devotion to prayer, at least to the ultimate success. I know that even saying that prayer is absolutely crucial to the advancement of the kingdom of God, we start to feel guilty. Who's feeling guilty? Who's ever felt guilty leaving a sermon on prayer, right? You always feel like you don't do enough, and sometimes you feel a little bit, Uh, amped up to go and do it, and then what happens? You run into a brick wall, it seems, right? Who here has a a healthy prayer life? You might actually, like, it's it's not like it's impossible. If we're taking Jesus' words at face value, it's possible. It's just that for the majority of Christians, it appears that we really, really struggle with prayer. We doubt that it will 
when we get on our knees or we get on our face or even if we're standing, if we're driving, how long can you go without being distracted? How long can you go without your mind just going elsewhere? What, 30 seconds? A minute? Right? Like, I, I, I don't have great endurance when it comes to prayer. My mind is all over the place. I'll be the first to admit it. It is very hard, especially in a world where we are hungry for stimulation at all moments in our day. That's why we go to our phones, except for basketball, but we go to our phones all the time, right? We're looking for that little jolt of something. We need a little something, right? We need a little something, a little jolt, a little a little chemical push to, to, to make it through. And so prayer is so hard for us because it is it is the opposite of our flesh, right? Uh, in our flesh, we want to stand upright as self-reliant men and women. We want to be people who are can control ourselves where we don't need anybody. But prayer is, is, is when we, we, we have to go to our knees. It is, it is humbling. Even the position of getting on your knees, even if you say nothing, is very hard for us, right? It's very hard for us. And I've heard people say, yeah, you don't have to really pray. You don't have to. You can do it on the toilet. This, like, you can pray anywhere while you're driving. And it's true. But there's just something humbling about praying on your knees, right? Getting down on your knees and showing your submission to the Lord of the universe, it is hard. And so I don't ha- actually have any answers to fix our prayer life. But I know this much. Prayer is directly tied to abiding in Christ. John fifteen seven says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Church, is it possible that we have severed prayer from abiding in Jesus and his word abiding in us? It seems that while many of us know we ought to pray, we don't view prayer as a time of abiding. We don't view our time in prayer as, a, as an act of going to be with Jesus, to praise him, to thank him, to enjoy his presence the same way that we view going home. Who views prayer the same way they view going home? excitement and the joy and the relief of going to your house, changing your clothes, going into your bed. You you know what that feeling is? How often do we equate prayer to promising deliverance? Prayer in so many ways feels like a chore, but when we see here in the word that if we abide in him, we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. Looking at Jesus' words to the disciples, Jesus says that good prayer starts with having faith and not doubting. And so the question I have for us, myself included, is, is it possible that the reason we don't pray is simply because we don't believe? Notice what Jesus says in John fifteen seven. He says, if my words abide in you, first we struggle to abide in him, but second, his words don't abide in us. In other words, the word of God is absolutely critical in our pursuit of prayer. When we are filled with his word, then we are filled with so much else. We are filled with his will. We are filled with the story of the gospel and our salvation. We are filled with his character. We are filled with understanding of what he wants. And when we want what he wants, then he will answer our prayers. The problem is, is when we don't abide in him or his word, then our prayers have nothing to do with God. How could our prayers have anything to do with God if we don't know him? If we don't know his word, if we're not reminded of our purpose and identity, if we don't know his character, if we don't know his will, if we don't know his mission, if we don't know his commandments, if we don't focus on the gospel, when we are distant from God through his word, 
that our prayers become less about him and more about us. And I think this is what James was talking about in James chapter 4, verse 15, when he said, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So often, prayer is about us. And quite frankly, you know, just from what I've observed in a lot of North American instances, when we pray, it is irrelevant if God is good or not. Right? It has nothing to do with him. It's just us performing some sort of ritual. It's just not even, it's not if he'd be there or not there. Right? And so church, I want you, I want to encourage you. If you are struggling to pray, like I said before, go home. I have no, no grand adjustments, no chiropractic adjustments to your pains, except to say this, go home. We must go back to our Savior. We must remember his death and resurrection. We must ask that the Holy Spirit remind us of his covenant and truth in his word. Christian, go, go home. Go back to your Savior. Remember his death and resurrection today. Let's learn what it means to live in our own live in our own strength. I pray that that begins from home. Though you may not have any super concrete things that you're going to read and you're going to go home and have, I pray that that home, that image of home can give you something as you look at home, right? Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, we uh, see that you are going to pass this word on. saw your son Jesus actually pick up a mountain, so we know that it's figurative. But God, we have lots of mountains in our lives. We have lots of things. We have lots of family members. We have lots of sickness. We have illness. We have so many hard circumstances. We have stubborn habits in our hearts, God, and we allow those to become idols. So God, I just pray that your spirit would be with us. Help us to pray. 